0: Welcome to Shambhala Publications podcast. This episode is the second of five in a series on the 8th century classic work of Buddhism, Shantideva's Bodhicharya Avatara, or the Way of the Bodhisattva. The presenter is Wulston Fletcher of the Padmakara Translation Group, who, as you'll soon see, is an extraordinary guide to this work. Along with Helena Blankletter, they have translated numerous classics of Tibetan Buddhism. In this second talk, Wollstone continues with the history of the text, and then dives into the first three chapters. We hope you find this to be a useful tool to deepen your own commitment to the path of the Bodhisattva in whatever form that might take. Please also visit Shambhala.com for a wealth of resources on the way of the Bodhisattva, including videos of these talks.
1: Um, we, could, we Actually, it might be a good idea to just, just to reflect a little bit more about the history of the text since, since Nico mentioned it. Um, which is to say that, uh, you know, as I said last night, the, uh, uh, the Bodhisattva Vatara was translated in the first diffusion. Uh, that's to say the period of translation that took place in Tibet after uh, King Trishon Detsen had invited the great Abbot Shantarakshita and Guru Rinpoche to establish the Dharma in Tibet and uh, it was Shantarakshita that set in motion the great work of uh, translation under royal patronage <clears throat> and in uh, the space of a few generations they succeeded in translating an immense quantity of uh, indian texts into tibetan the translators working closely with the indian panditas who had either come with uh, Shant- shantarakshita or came later And as I said, uh, Shantideva was an older contemporary of Shantarakshita, and so the fact that his text was translated then is actually quite remarkable because it shows that it had become well-known and popular very quickly. Um, Then uh, we come to the... um, After several kings, we come to the reign of uh, Sri Ralpachan, who was murdered by his brother who then called Lang Dharma and uh, Lang Dharma then suppressed Buddhism in Tibet. He dissolved the monasteries and he either killed or chased away the monks and all Dharma activities came to an end. Uh, with the exception of course of the the prakti- the tantric practitioners who were lay people and it was thanks to them in fact that the original tradition was maintained in secret, um, protected by such figures as uh, Nubchen Sangye Yeshe, who was a great, uh, great yogi and was even able to intimidate the king by his uh, various powers. Uh, <coughs> anyway, when, uh, then uh, Langdama was eventually assassinated and slowly Buddhism began to creep back into the center of the country. Uh, by that time... Uh, the royal dynasty had collapsed, and Tibet kind of dissolved into a series of petty um, princedoms. You know, uh, there was a general chaos. Uh, gradually, the uh, monastic order uh, revived and came back to um, um, the centre of Tibet. There are interesting stories of monks coming from the east and being, you know, ending up in Samye and finding it completely ruined and, you know, covered in, you know, full of weeds and so on and so forth. Anyway, <clears throat> then gradually the work of translation started again in what we call the Second Diffusion. And this was a very different affair, and it's actually, whereas before translation had been supported by the royal power and uh, subsidized by the king, uh, in the Second Diffusion it was a much more, um, to begin with, a very heroic um, Enterprise because it meant that individual Tibetans going to India, braving all the dangers of the road and so on the difficult journey of the mountains, staying into, staying in India for long periods at the risk of their life, you know often dying from disease and so on, meeting with masters, and then coming back to Tibet with texts that they translated so like, like for instance Marpa is a good a good case in point um, <coughs> and gradually uh what happened was that as as the monastic order began to reshape and take shape again uh, the centers of dharma activity in tibet whereas before they had been kind of um you know supported by the king they were centered on monasteries it was the monasteries that then became the centers of culture and the centers of learning and um as i said last night one of the key figures in this process was atisha uh, Dipamkara who came who had been a, the Abbot of vikramashila in India and who um, came to uh, the west of tibet first of all, invited by the King of um, Toling. uh the this thelaal the who was um, this extraordinary king who actually was also a monk I think, and uh, the story is that he um, he was captured by his enemies, and they, his enemies said that the, the ransom was the um, his own weight in gold. So, <clears throat> people they managed to collect this amount of gold, and when they came to the prison to pay it, in, the, the king said, "No, don't don't give it to them. Uh, take it to India and invite Atisha." And so he, it was thanks to his sacrifice that Atisha. Uh, came to uh, the west of Tibet, and then gradually he made his way to the center of the country, and um, revived the um, the monastic order. He uh, made many trans- several translations of his own, and and uh, inspired many others, and sort of started the the process of the second diffusion of uh, translation in a, in a big scale. So, um, and as I said last night, he founded what was known as the Kadampa tradition, and the the six basic texts of the Kadampa tradition included the way of the Bodhisattva of Shantideva. Um, That went hand in hand with the founding of various monasteries, and in particular, the uh, monastery of Sangpu, uh, which was founded by um, Ngok Sherab who was a direct disciple of Atisha. He became the first abbot. And uh, he sent his nephew, Ngok Lodensherab, uh, to India to study Sanskrit. Sherab stayed there for 20 years or so and um, mastered the language, came back, became the abbot of Sangpu in due course and produced many... Uh, 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 translations of great importance, especially in the logic tradition. And uh, Sangpu was uh, the place where Tibetan scholasticism really began. The whole kind of system of debate was elaborated in Sangpu. The the logic tradition was elaborated there. Great studies of Madhyamaka and so on and so forth. And one of the uh, tools that was invented in Sangpu... And the, you know, for scholastic study, was what was known as the sabje, which means the breaking up of the ground of a text into different headings and subheadings, what we call uh, a textual outline. And the textual outline depends uh, is a commentarial tool, right? So you have uh, you have a root text and then the commentator will devise a textual outline that's to say he will read the text and divide it into its various subsections according to the way he understands it so different commentators will produce different textual outlines of the same text it's quite possible and, you know obviously the the differences will be fairly minor but they can be they can be fairly significant so you can under, you can understand the subject or this textual outline as the commentary in germ, the the sort of the most basic level of commentary, of interpretation. And these subjects can be very elaborate and uh, very helpful. Um, So Atisha founded the Kadampa tradition and this great uh, tradition of learning in Tibet. And uh, his sort of teaching uh, on Bodhicitta on the stages of the path. Lam Rim begins with Atisha. His basic text, The Lamp for the Path, is the first Lam Rim text. And um, so the Kadampa tradition became extremely uh, influential. It was very strict. It was, uh, it was, they put great emphasis on the purity of monastic discipline. They laid great emphasis on um, Bodhicitta and on the practice of compassion. They were largely vegetarian, which was, you know, it represent, that represented quite a challenge in Tibet where, you know, you can't grow anything or very little. So uh, the Kadampa tradition became extremely influential and, in fact, was absorbed into all the four schools of Tibetan Buddhism to such an extent that you could say that it was almost a victim of its own success in the sense that the Kadampa school disappeared as such, for reasons that are not altogether clear, but the the, the, the Kadampa spirit informed all the uh, four schools. So uh, it's very stro- you find it very strongly in uh, the Nyingma tradition in the writings of Longchenpa and Jigme Lingpa and so on with their different texts of you know the various stages of the path. You find it in the Kagyu tradition with Gampopa. You find it in the Sakya tradition and, of course, very strongly in the Galupa tradition Where when Tsongkhapa founded the Galupas. He's consciously modeled his monastery on the Kadampa teaching. So, um, and for reasons that will become clear late, maybe tomorrow when we talk about Tibetan politics a little bit, um, the... The Galukpa school became the dominant school, as we know. And uh, Tsongkhapa was a, a very brilliant teacher, and he sort of represented the teachings of Shantideva, absorbed them completely, and represented them in his own texts of the Lam Rim, you know, the different stages of the path, to such an extent that the... And it was so good and so successful that the actual text of Shantideva ceased to be studied for a time as a separate entity it seems so that by the t- when we get to the 19th century uh, it was uh, listed you can find it mentioned on the lists of rare books which is quite interesting although the spirit of, the spirit of of uh, Shantideva's teachings was r- still alive nevertheless it wasn't studied particularly as a separate entity until we come to somebody um, an, an extraordinary master called Patrol Rinpoche who uh, <coughs> was um, uh, had enormous devotion to the the text of Shanta and taught it constantly wherever he went, especially in the east of, of the country. He taught it to not only to um, the monasteries, the monks in the monasteries, but he taught it also to large uh, groups of lay people. Uh, to the extent that he, uh, you know, the lay people received an education from him. And then it says there are, a, there are whole areas of Tibet where the, the practice of hunting ceased because of the influence of uh, uh, Patrul Rinpoche. Um, and of course, Patrul Rinpoche is, is a key figure in the Rimé uh, movement, which we'll talk about tomorrow—the non-sectarian movement. Um, Patrul Rinpoche had many disciples. One of one of his closest disciples was Kempo Kunsang Pelden, Kempo Kumpel for short. And Kempo Kumpel wrote uh, a very good, very clear, very full, influential commentary called, was translated with the title of The Nectar of Manjastri's Speech. And he used for that text, the Patru Rinpoche never uh, wrote a commentary on the Vatara, but he, call, he taught it constantly, so his, his way of interpretation became very familiar to many people. And although he didn't write a commentary, he wrote a sabche. And the subject is what uh, Kempo Kumpel used for his commentary, and actually there are printed copies of it at the, um, over there. If you want to take a look at it, uh, we will be looking at it fairly closely later. Um, but I just wanted to say that um, once you, you know, when you look at a textual outline, it looks rather forbidding. But once you know how to use it, it's actually quite handy. So we'll we'll, we'll do that later. So now, this morning, uh, well, rather this weekend, um, you know, I was asked to do this workshop, and I've I've never done this before. And uh, I understand a workshop to be where you really work on something, right? So that I I, I guess where by what would be what would be nice would be by the end of the weekend you can go home feeling that you know this text uh, and read it, and but have a sort of hands-on sort of knowledge of the content and uh, of course we can't we can't go into enormous detail there just isn't time nevertheless if 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 we manage to get a kind of get our bearings uh, in this text and realize uh, how interesting and useful it is then you know when you later on you read it for yourself you'll be able to get you get more out of it perhaps than before So this morning, I would like to, yesterday we said that the the text is divided into three sections according to that um, uh, verse of Nagarjuna, may precious bodhicitta um, arise where it has not yet come to be and where it has arisen may it never fail but grow and flourish ever more and more. So the first three chapters of this text that we're going to look at this morning have to do with uh, may precious bodhicitta arise where it has not yet come to be so how uh, what, what Shantideva is doing here is um stimulating an interest in bodhicitta. and kind of um remember as i said this this text is something that shantadeva wrote for himself it wasn't a, it, it wasn't intended to, for publication um <clears throat> he ha, he sa, as he says at the beginning i wrote it only to deepen my own understanding and uh, so when he was being uh, when the monks of Nalanda were trying to humiliate him and sort of drive him away, you know, uh, because thinking that he didn't know anything. Uh, then he, he said to them, well, do you want to know, do you want to hear something traditional or do you want something new? And this certainly was new because nobody had ever heard, of it, heard it except himself. And so you have to bear in mind also that he, when, in all the arguments that he puts in this text, he's talking to himself primarily. But then he says, if someone equal to myself in fortune may glance at this text, maybe they will get something out of it. It may be helpful to them, and so he's willing to share. So um, he starts... um, So this first section that we're going to do this morning is the first three chapters, the excellence of Bodhicitta, the confession chapter, and the third chapter of taking hold of Bodhicitta. And if you remember what I said last night... um, you know, based on the discoveries at Dunhuang, Huang, there, there was a very early translation, probably the first translation, grouped chapters two and three together as a single unit, which is actually quite a useful way to read them. Uh, <coughs> so uh, we start with chapter one. Mm. I'm sorry, I forgot to bring my clock. Do you have a... Some, uh, can you? Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so we're going to 12, right? Yeah. So, um, if you have the text with you, um, he, Shantideva begins with this salutation to the Buddhas and says in the second stanza here, I shall say nothing that has not been said before. And in the art of prosody, I have no skill. I therefore have no thought that this might be of benefit to others. I wrote it only to habituate my mind. My faith will thus be strengthened for a little while that I might grow accustomed to this virtuous way. But others who now chance upon my words may profit also equal to myself in fortune. Um, So it's interesting to see how he sort of oscillates between an expression of humility and the consciousness that what he has to say is nevertheless important. And the commentator says, actually this is an interesting way to go when you're, when you're studying the Dharma. He says, um, when you're generating excellent qualities, the generation of excellent qualities is impeded in the mind by two extremes, either a sort of arrogant uh, overconfidence on the one hand, or a feeling of incompetence and Um, um, self-denigration, if you like, on the other. The the important thing is to have a middle way where you uh, focus not upon what you're going to say, not upon you, but on what is said, on what is studied. So Shantideva then goes on to um, talk about the difficulty of attaining the... um, Precious human life, which is the basis of all uh, spiritual endeavor. Um, <clears throat> so, as, as we say, as we saw last night, it's it's important uh, for us too uh, to reflect on the difficulty of gaining human life, and on its fragility. So, it is a kind of propitious moment in space and time. That is to say, one appears, one arises in the human form at a moment where, uh, in a a form, therefore, where spiritual progress is possible, but also in a time when teaching still exists and is available. And so we can think about ourselves in that position. Our position is extremely fortunate. You know, not only, uh, when you think about the, um, just to think about the, the world in general, which is so full of, chaos, and violence, and exploitation, and poverty, and sickness. Uh, Here we are, as it were, almost by a miracle, we are sitting in this beautiful room on a sunny day in Boulder, and we've got together to think about the Dharma, to think about Buddhism, to think about bodhicitta, and that is a very uh, precious thing to have happened. That is itself an indication that we have a great deal of merit in our mind streams and so it stands to reason that we should try to, um, to make use of it uh, because it's so easy to lose and as you will see that Shantideva's general technique is to sort of present you a kind of wonderful idea glorious objective uh, which he describes in, in very poetic terms a kind of carrot if you like something to, to draw you on and at the same time, or on, very often he'll sort of switch to the opposite extreme and try to scare you by saying, uh, "This you know the stakes are extremely high. You, you, this precious situation will pass, and you may lose it and you may fall into great suffering where you won't be able to do anything about it so uh, it's very important to not only to understand the teaching but actually to continue in them um, One thing I would like to uh, put emphasis on is this intensely personal approach of Shantideva. He recites something that he himself uh, had composed for himself. He's not trying to impose it on anybody else. Uh, He's talking about what happened in his own mind. And when it comes to uh, spiritual life, the practice of the path, everything depends on what is happening in one's own heart. Because very often we, we sort of live our lives in a very externalized way and we worry about what people think about us. We worry about our place in society, our success and so on, um, on the kind of influence that people may have on us and so on, our family and friends and so, things like this. Uh, but when it comes to uh, taking refuge in the, in the Three Jewels, or when it comes to generating the thought of bodhicitta, it can only happen in the secret of your own heart. Even if you're living in a family, they don't know what's going on inside you. Everything depends on what you do. And so Kempo Kunpel, in his commentary, he says, once you have attained this opportunity, once you have come across the Dharma, once you have met a competent teacher, your first resolve should be never to lose this uh, situation. Uh, never to let it go, never to let, not to let, do what, whatever you can to prevent it fading away. It's certain that if you do nothing, it will fade. Even if you, even if for a moment you've got a very kind of in, moment of inspiration. And so he says um, you should resolve never to lose it, but develop it more and more. He Kumbha says, don't ask your father, don't discuss it with your mother. Don't let others decide for you. Just make your own way. Make up your mind and be independent. Be like a yak with its nose rope wrapped around its own head. You know, when the yak, you put a rope through its nose and people can lead it everywhere. But if it has the rope wrapped around its own head, it's free. It can go where it wants. And then he says, leave your enemies. If you've got enemies, just forget about them. Leave them. Leave them to their own devices. Don't try to fight back. I suppose he's thinking, you know, of kind of family vendettas, which were quite common in eastern Tibet. He said, "Leave it all. Don't bother about revenge. Don't bother about your family reputation. Just go." Uh, he says, "Let your let your fields dry up." He's talking about uh, the kind of practitioner that uh, one could find in Tibet, like Paturimshe himself. Paturimshe had been uh, he'd been recognized as a tulku um, of the Palge monastery, and so he was kind of stuck there as a young, as a child and a young man, and in particular, he was in the in the power of the um, the kind of administrator of the monastery of what they call the Labrang, the the, the lama's house in the monastery, and um, so he, you know they they kind of did in Tibet they did what they could to sort of Promote the prosperity of the monastery, its continuity, its riches, and so on and so forth. The whole kind of, tulku system was all part of that um, tradition. So, what happened was that eventually this uh, administrator died, and um, Paturimbishi took his chance. He closed the labrang and left. He just walked out. He, he left them to their own devices, and he became this uh, sort of wandering hermit. He would live in caves and under trees and things like this. And he wandered all over the place. And, um, you know, they would say about him that um, if ever he had to travel somewhere, if he had to go so all he had to do was stand up. That was all he had. All The, the only thing he had was the clothes he was wearing. He didn't have to worry about packing anything. He just got up and went. Um Of course, this is not our case. We are sort of uh, living in a very different society. Uh, So that requires a certain amount of skill on our part to create this kind of mental freedom, this mental solitude, one's own kind of secret place where renunciation can happen, where bodhicitta can take its birth and so on. So... um, It's very useful to, uh, you know, in the mind training teachings, they they present you with all kinds of thought experiments to, to do while you're, sort of reflecting in, in, in meditation or you know when you're just waiting for the bus. It doesn't matter, um, <clears throat> and uh, you know you've you must have heard them all about, uh, um, you know how to appreciate the precious moment, and the one that speaks to me a lot is this image of um, a prison on an island. Uh, this prison is vast and it's full of uh, wretched uh, inmates who are constantly being tortured by sadistic guards. Right? So uh, one, uh, one aspect of the sadism of these guards is that they'll randomly pick a few people and they'll take them outside the prison. You know, it's a beach, I guess. And they leave them for the whole day. And they say, you can do what you like. Because they know that, uh, you know, um, on, the, on the understanding that eventually, when night comes, they'll take them back into the hell realm, the lower, you know, the prison. And it's a great delight to them to see the suffering of these prisoners when they have lost this moment of pleasure and freedom and they go back, right? So on this beach, there are a number of boats. And on the horizon... You can see the land, freedom, right? They can leave if they want to. There's nobody, the guards aren't there stopping them. But what everybody does is to wander around the island, admiring the prison from the outside. And they don't get it. They don't realize that they can leave, they can get out. But they don't do it. And this is, our, this is the position of so many human beings, to have to have the human birth is to have to be in that moment of kind of opportunity, and if you meet the Dharma, the boats are there and freedom is in sight. But we don't take it; we don't take the opportunity. So uh, that's quite useful when we, you know when you're feeling depressed or when you're feeling lazy and uh, loss of interest, and you find the Dharma boring or difficult, and so on. Okay, so. Um, If you look at chapter one, once uh, Shantideva said this, he says that the the first chapter divides into two main sections. The first one is, the first section consists of stanzas one to five, and the rest of the stanzas, the the second part is the stanza six till the end. It's actually quite a simple format, chapter one. So let me just read one to five. We've already read some of it, but I'll go over it again. To those who go in bliss, the Dharmakaya they possess and all their heirs, to all those worthy of respect I reverently bow. According to the scriptures, I shall now in brief describe the practice of the Bodhisattva discipline. Here I shall say nothing that has not been said before, and in the art of prosody I have no skill. I therefore have no thought that this might be of benefit to others. I wrote it only to habituate my mind. My faith will thus be strengthened for a little while that I might grow accustomed to this virtuous way. But others who now chance upon my words may profit also equal to myself in fortune. So hard to find the ease and wealth whereby the aims of beings may be gained. If now I fail to turn it to my profit, how could such a chance be mine again? Just as on a dark night, black with clouds, the sudden lightning glares and all is clearly shown. Likewise, rarely, through the Buddha's power, virtuous thoughts rise, brief and transient in the world. So the virtuous thought in this case is the thought of bodhicitta. It's suddenly, it's there in the mind. It won't be there for very long. While it's there, let's try to understand it, let's try to prolong it, let's try to deepen our understanding of it. Um... (coughs) You will notice that he talks. He's talking about himself, and he's talking about his own advantage. Uh, and this is uh, an important f- part of the path. You know, you you often hear, uh, you know, Buddhism is the path of no self, and uh, and so on and so forth. Um, but in fact, ego is a very important component. Why? Because uh, it's the the whole sort of nexus of self-interest which will act as a kind of motor to the path. You know, Shantideva goes on and on about don't fall into the lower realms, try to protect yourself, try to aim for higher higher things, try to aim for happiness, the glorious result and so on. And it's you're you're doing something for you, right? And so this is uh, And if you look at the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, which is the first and most basic teaching that the Buddha gave, is based on self-interest. He says, the problem with you is not that you're bad, but that you suffer. So if you don't want to suffer, I'll show you a way. So the wish not to suffer is a, a deeply ingrained attitude of all sentient beings. Every every being that has a sense of self will protect itself. So, you know, you can go in the garden and you can see a slug. It's just a piece of muscle. It hasn't got a bone in its body. But it has a mind. It has... If you poke it, it'll recoil, it'll try to protect itself. If you put a leaf of lettuce in front of it, it'll come towards it. It has a feeling of, of wanting something, it has a feeling of wanting to avoid something. It has a sense of self. So, this is actually a fundamental feature of our existence. And so, the Buddha, who, you know, the teacher is skilled in means, makes use of it. And Shantideva does also. Um, <coughs> So once, once he's got this idea that he's found this precious opportunity, and this precious opportunity is very rare and very fragile, he then goes on to say, uh, he then goes on to talk about this idea of bodhicitta and present it in wonderful terms as something that, is, uh, that everybody would want to have. Um, he talks about the superiority of bodhicitta as a virtue. He talks about the way that when it happens to somebody, it completely transforms their mind. They become noble. They are ennobled by it. They become children of the Buddha, the children of the conqueror. And then he shows uh, different benefits of bodhicitta through various examples. Um, <clears throat> he gives uh, five, in fact, in this particular text, and Kenpo Kumpal a sixth. So he talks about how bodhicitta transforms the mind, like, an alch- like as in alchemy. You know the the quicksilver of the alchemists. Alchemy was practiced in uh, India, as much, well, probably even more than it was in uh, in Europe. And various masters of uh, the Dharma were actually, were considered to be alchemists, like uh, uh, Nagarjuna. Whether it's the same person who who. Composer Majamaka Karakas, or a later Nagarjuna, it doesn't matter. He was considered to be an alchemist. He knew how to transform base metals into gold. So, uh, using this idea, Shantideva says a bodhicitta is like that. It takes the base metal of the ordinary mind, of the ordinary body, the ordinary human body, and transforms it into the body of a Buddha. He talks about um, bodhicitta as a a precious jewel which uh, transforms a poor person into a rich person. If somebody possesses a diamond, they are a rich person, right? They may find it in the dust, but they become rich. Um, He says it's a supreme, uh, it's an endlessly, uh, it's it's a goal of endless benefit. He talks about how Bodhicitta is constantly renewing it's itself as a source of merit in the mind. We talked about the importance of merit. He talks about bodhicitta as a protection for the mind, that even a mind that is weighed down by negativity, as our minds are, by the way, you know, looking back over the endless series of lives that we've lived through, uh, it acts as the supreme protection. It prevents you from falling. Uh, it's like the apocalyptic fire. It's like the fire that will consume the the universe at the end of the kalpa, and it will consume our sins and reduce them to dust. Um, so I would just like to read that to you, if you don't mind, because I think it's quite... Um, um, let me see. Yes, uh, before, before doing that... Uh, In the midst of this praise of bodhisattva, he gives us a slight analysis of what bodhisattva is. So he gives us a kind of identification. Uh, basically, if you look at the commentaries, bodhicitta can be understood as the desire to attain enlightenment for the sake of others. Um, at the moment, uh, you might have this feeling of compassion, of um, sorrow, when you see the sufferings of others. Um, but one of the worst things about that is that you realize that you can't do anything to help people. If you've, if you've ever seen somebody uh, completely wasted away by cancer, or you see somebody, a mother, for instance, who has lost her baby, or you look at the migrants that are pouring into Europe, a great danger from themselves. They can no longer live in their homeland. Nobody wants them. Um, they're reduced to great poverty. Often they're, you know, well-educated, professional people reduced to complete poverty. When you see all that and you feel sad, but you can't do anything. So the image image that that is given in the the teachings is that of a, a woman who has no arms, and she sees her children or her child being carried away by a river. She can't do anything to save them. All she can do is scream and, sh- and weep and run up and down the shore. And actually, that's what we are like. You know, you know, through, when, you, when you listen to the Buddhist teachings, yes, you realize the importance of compassion. But it's not, that's not enough. You have to have the ability to save them. And the only way you can do that... On the, in the long run, you know, within the, in the uh, perspective of the Buddhist teaching, that's to say lasting over many, many lives, the only way you can do this is to teach them. Because uh, even the Buddha, if somebody, if somebody is falling into hell because of his or her uh, negative karma, there's very little that even the Buddha can do. He can't sort of pick you up and put you in heaven or something. So as it says in the the sutras, the Buddha says, um, um, I cannot wash sins away with water. I cannot transfer my realization into the minds of others by magic. Um, What I can do is to show you the way. So his dying words were, work out your own salvation with diligence. Because the only thing that can uh, save the mind is the mind itself. It's the mind itself that is transformed by implementation of the teachings. And that is how uh, a Buddha is able to save. That is why the Buddha is an object of refuge. Um, Of course... uh, the, uh, an enlightened person, a person who is, is gr- has great spiritual power and, and insight, has also access to a great range of skillful means because that person can actually perceive the needs of the individual and give them the necessary uh, teaching that they need. You know That is the mark of, a, of, a, of a, an authentic uh, teacher, isn't it? So... Um, <clears throat> So there, there is um, this desire to attain that state for the sake of others. It's not to attain the state of, of Buddhahood because one wants to have the comfort of being a Buddha. right? It's not wanting to go to heaven and, have no, and put an end to one's own particular sorrows. It is this desire to, that is based on compassion but which goes beyond compassion and is actually this great decision... <coughs> Uh, to uh, do something about it. So uh, Chantadeva divides Bodhicitta into two, into two halves. It's Bodhicitta in aspiration and Bodhicitta in engagement. And Bodhicitta in aspiration is the first step. It's wanting to be wanting to attain enlightenment for the sake of others whereas bodhicitta in engagement is the actual practice that you you do in order to transform yourself for the sake of others Um, he says um, bodhicitta, the awakened mind is known in brief to have two aspects First, aspiring, bodhicitta in intention, then active bodhicitta, practical engagement. As corresponding to the wish to go somewhere and then to setting out, the wise should understand respectively the difference that divides these two. From bodhicitta in intention, great results arise from those still turning in the wheel of life. Yet merit does not rise from it in ceaseless streams, as is the case with active bodhicitta. For when, with irreversible intent, the mind embraces bodhicitta, willing to set free the endless multitudes of beings, in that instant, from that moment on, a great and unremitting stream, a strength of wholesome merit, even during sleep and inattention, rises equal to the vastness of the sky." So, um, in the, there are various different teachings that are set forth in the mind training tradition for the, to generate this aspirational bodhicitta, this desire. And um, one of them, uh, which is called the, the meditation on one's mother, is one of the ways to do this. And so the idea is that you, you reflect... Uh, about uh, whoever is most dear to you in your own individual experience it might might well be your mother it might be any somebody else and you feel that um the way that the way you feel about that person and the way you are thought of by that person has at some stage been the case between you and every other being at some point in the the space of your past lives which extend back to infinity and so you uh you feel you you have an appreciation for the goodness the good that that being has done to you the beings have done to you and you have a kind of feeling that you want to repay it um, if you think of your old mother for instance who and I know that this is not everybody has had a a good mother but many people do um, This person who has looked after you, who has done for you things that nobody else would have, uh, that accepted you in her body, and raised you, brought you to birth, looked after you, protected you, and so on. Um, It would be it would be a terrible thing to abandon such a person in their old age, when they have no health or protection, and so on. And therefore, you feel I can't leave them. I can't, I can't leave this person, I must do something. Uh, people feel that even when they haven't had a good relationship with their mother, they do feel a sense of responsibility often. Um, and then uh, So then one generates uh, love, the desire that they should be happy. One generates the idea of compassion, the wish that they don't suffer. And when this is brought to such a pitch, you begin to, and you kind of spread it out and sort of tell yourself that this is the case with all beings that once upon a time, I was the center of their love. They looked after me with the greatest tenderness. Even somebody, even an animal, even somebody that you don't like, Donald Trump <laughs> was at some point this person who, for whom I was the, the greatest treasure and for, who was for me also that greatest treasure. And so you feel, um, you know, that's the terrible tragedy of being in samsara because we are surrounded. You know, I was, I was once talking to um, a Christian friend um, who knew me very well uh, when I was a Christian and who, um, I mean, we're still friends, but deep down I think he's quite appalled. By what i 've done, and he said to me um, don't you want to meet don't you want to see your mother again in heaven you know it's the you see it so often in hollywood films don't you, you know the the uh, the dying person reaches the shore and steps into the boat and it drifts away, goes through the mist, and then there 's the other shore and there's Mom, and you know, the family looking extremely well, waiting for you, you know, with open arms, and it's going to be great forever. Um, so he said, Don't you want to meet your mother again? And I was, I thought it's a very good question. And, uh, and I said, Actually, my mothers are all around me, they're here. But the great tragedy, you know, the animals that we eat. The people that we don't like, the the soldiers who kill the people that they kill, and so on and so forth, the the sleazy politicians, and so on and so forth. They, uh, the tragedy is that we don't recognise each other anymore. We've forgotten all the people that we meet. We've forgotten them, and they've forgotten us. And that is the na- that is the nature of samsara. So. You know, these kind of thoughts, it's useful to sort of let them turn in one's mind so that, you know, one gradually begins to uh, acquire a certain tenderness towards others. You know, you you begin to notice, um, you know, you see the woman at the cash desk in the supermarket and, you know, instead of wanting to get through as quickly as possible, you notice that the end of the day, and she's tired, and she's probably going to make mistakes, and she's worried about losing her job, and so on and so forth. You can't you begin, a, you it, gradually you get a little more sensitive to others. That's very precious. So uh, that is all the part, all, all the sort of things that that add up to bodhicitta and intention. Because as you will see, that the actual task ahead is enormous. Uh, you know, just on the on the level of the sutra teachings, it is said that. Uh, if once you have engaged in the body way of life, uh, at the best of cases, you can expect uh, buddhahood after three countless eons. That's a very long time. So that in and that's a good that's the best of cases. It can be a lot longer than that. So, um, in a sense, when you when you sort of get that idea, you realize that the goal will always remain the goal far in the head. And actually, the reality is the path, the, the, thing, the, the, the different skills that you acquire and, and the way in which you um, relate to others. Um, <clears throat> so, you can say, okay, it, and the way Shantideva, Shantideva describes the path, of course, it seems very difficult and you might think well you know i'm never going to do it i'm i'm really yeah, i can't even sit for 5 minutes you know I, even that's quite long for me you know and i'm I've, I've my mind is constantly invaded by negativity i feel bad about myself i'm surrounded by people i don't like uh, i'm you know ambitions and all that and you feel uh, and that, that i think if we're honest that's that occupies quite a lot of our experience but the important thing is, do you want it or don't you? And if you say, yes, I want it, you're already on the path, you've started. That's bodhicitta in aspiration. Um <clears throat> And so, actually, this is uh, Shantideva sort of... In this first chapter, Shantideva reflects on the nature of Bodhicitta and he, he does it in such a way that he ends up wanting to have Bodhicitta. That's the purpose of this first chapter, talking about the excellence of Bodhicitta. And um, it, what it's meant to do for us who read it, it's meant to instill um, a longing for it you know we may feel it's, a, it's an I- just to have bodhicitta is, is an ideal that's very difficult to attain but simply to want it to long for it, to yearn for it is uh, the very important first step so um, uh, Kempo Kunpel says that we must give rise to bodhicitta in ourselves and when we do we will yearn for whatever will engender it wherever it has previously been absent. And we will intensify it where it has arisen without ever letting it decline. When we have such an interest and longing, so great that none can prevent it, like a hungry and thirsty person craving for food and water, this is truly the result of understanding the benefits of bodhicitta. So like, if somebody is really thirsty, you can never say to them, stop wanting to drink, because they can't. When when uh, aspirational bodhicitta really takes birth, you can't stop people from wanting to to gain uh, enlightenment. And to that end, he says, we should train ourselves over and over again. So to go back to my original point about these, the privacy of this wish, deep in one's, the secret of one's own heart... It's very important, as you know in all in all Buddhist teachings to bring everything onto the into experience as much as you can and not leave it uh, simply um, on the level of intellectual understanding um, in a sense we're, that's what we're doing now we're talking about on an intellectual understanding I'm talking to you and you're listening, but of course, the real work is what's happening inside your minds and my mind um, and so you know, I often think that, um, you know, it's great to, to study the Dharma. The Dharma is a huge subject and very interesting. You know, this has its own cultural dimension, philosophical dimension, ethical dimension. It can be very interesting. One can do all manner of uh, courses in the university and get degrees and write one's theses and get a doctorate and so on. But when you think of it, when you think about the preciousness of this opportunity uh, to leave this life with nothing but a PhD in Buddhism, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's not a great thing, because the in you know, a when if you if you use the if you use the image of a, a computer, everything that you everything that you learn intellectually is like what's in the RAM of the computer. It'll stay there as long as the computer's on. As soon as the computer's turned off, everything in the RAM is wiped out. As soon as you die, within minutes, all the learning of a career in the university is wiped out. It falls into complete oblivion. You forget everything. All that remains is what's in the hard drive. And the only way to put, to transfer, contents from the RAM into the hard drive is by constant repetition acquiring the habit it's the habits that remain what you bring with you into this life when you're born is not anything that you learnt in your previous life intellectually what you bring are the kind of habitual tendencies that have gradually been set up in the process of your previous existences So, and that's what you know the wisdom of meditation is you know you understand you obviously have to have things on the ram to begin with intellectual understanding but then you reflect upon them and it gets deeper and deeper and then through meditation and remember the word for meditation in tibetan just means habituation you gradually the mind gradually gets more and more imbued with these habitual ways of thinking and that's what you take with you when you die and that's what you bring into the next life when you're born so um, yes, I put down here that, you, that everything is wiped out at the time of death if you haven't already forgotten it by the time you die, which is quite po- quite possible. Um, <clears throat> so then, uh, Shantideva, he goes on to sort of uh, extol the, uh, the merits of Bodhisattva by uh, reflecting on how great Bodhisattvas are. And if you've ever uh, met a bodhisattva, uh, you will know that they are uh, ex- extraordinary beings. You know, uh, somebody like uh, uh, the Dalai Lama, or somebody like uh, Dingo Rinpoche. These are the ones I can vouch for because re- I've met them myself. But you will have met other lamas, like the Karmapa, and so on. And you immediately recognise that there is a kind of uh, power. And it's a power that comes from complete fearlessness because uh, they uh, have absorbed the teachings to such an extent that it's their ground base. They have absolutely no doubt. You know, Dingo Kiense who I knew a little bit uh, and who was my first main teacher, uh, he was this incredibly impressive person. I mean, he was physically very big. Uh, but you had this feeling. I couldn't understand a word he was saying. He, he sort of had this strange Tibetan that was difficult to um, understand. But you had this feeling that uh, while you were sitting with him, it wouldn't have mattered if a, if a, a, an atom bomb exploded and everyone was destroyed. You you wouldn't. It was okay. Somehow he was like this kind of world axis. You know, this sort of central center of sort of peace and confidence and he was an object of refuge and so when you t- when you talk about taking refuge you take refuge in an object of refuge but when you take the vow of bodhicitta when you try to become a bodhisattva you are actually committing yourself to becoming an object of refuge yourself uh, a being that will be able to uh, guide and save people from their useless sufferings of samsara like the mother you know a mother grows arms rather than being being armless so um we don't have time really to read it so that that's basically the um the content of this uh, this first chapter i don't know if you have any questions you want to ask if you want to contribute yes
0: Do you want to... uh, uh, One aspect or dimension of what you've been discussing about the uh, very personal nature of entering this path Mm. uh, seems to be... Somebody asked Lingtro Rinpoche once uh, what the gold standard was of bodhicitta. In other words, how do you know you're really experiencing bodhicitta so you can feel confident that you're engaging with it? And he said... uh, there's no gold standard of bodhicitta. It's completely up to your personal experience. Mm-hmm. And so uh, even the standard of bodhicitta was, uh, in that regard, seemingly completely personal. So bodhicitta is each person's discovery of what it is rather than it's some, you know, uh, at first uh, impalpable and then gradually uh, palpable Standards, And I'm wondering what you think about that and whether the common commentaries say anything about that aspect of bodhicitta or whether it's in some way quantifiable.
1: Well, Shantideva does quantify it. Well, actually, he says, no, how can it be quantified? He says... Um, hmm. I can't find it, needless to say. Uh, yeah, uh do how, when do we know if we've got real bodhicitta? I don't know. But what we can know is whether we want it. That's the that's the you know, we can know that. And um, you know, uh, the different levels of bodhicitta, you know, if you read the the treasure of precious qualities as a short uh, kind of description of the different ways of classifying bodhicitta. And, you know, there's a kind of bodhicitta of the of the real beginner. There's the bodhicitta of those who are on the path of accumulation and joining. There's a the bodhicitta that is uh, present in the minds of bodhi, uh, people who attain the path of vision. And then all through the ten Bhunis, bodhicitta is present. And this kind of bodhicitta becomes more and more refined and powerful but then, you know, how can we quantify it? It's As, as you say, it's a kind of, uh, it is the experience of the person in question. But ultimate bodhicitta um, is, yes, this is something that I didn't mention, but this is something very important to understand. He Chantideva says there's such a thing as aspirational bodhicitta and there's such a thing as bodhicitta of engagement. Then we also make a, another distinction, which is relative bodhicitta and ultimate bodhicitta. The relative bodhicitta is The practice of the path, all the practices of the path that lead to enlightenment for the sake of others. So, um, you know, the practice of compassion and so on, the different, all the studies and the realizations that come from the, uh, you know, on the different levels. uh, That's all uh, relative bodhicitta. Whereas ultimate bodhicitta is emptiness, the uh, ultimate nature of phenomena so that and actually ultimate bodhicitta uh, can be understood as actually the buddha nature which remains completely and f- always and forever perfect and when we talk about the realization of enlightenment it's not something that comes in from outside it is something that flowers from within because every, every, every mind every mind stream has this nature this ultimate nature which is the buddha nature which is concealed by the veils the obscurations which have been built up uh, over over endless lifetimes through negativity through ignorance through um, the three poisons ultimate bodhicitta arises is actually that disclosure of the buddha nature so you can look at it you can look at it in that way or you can look at it as the Emptiness, the realization of emptiness of all phenomena. Uh, The teachings of emptiness are the teachings about ultimate bodhicitta. Um, And so the bodhisattva path is actually the progress towards that uh, ultimate bodhicitta. Does Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. so um, we now move on to chapters 2 and 3 which we can take together and uh, in, if you have the uh, translation of the Bodhisattva the by Crosby and Skilton you will find quite, an, quite a useful uh, historical note about uh, what is actually this, the structure of these two chapters Um, What seems to be the case is that Shantideva is referring to uh, what in Nalanda of his time was called the Uttara Puja, the Supreme Puja or Offering. It was a kind of monastic liturgy that that they would celebrate um, in the monastery in Nalanda. And uh, it's described in the... um, Well, it's sort of following on from the... um, inspired as we might say by the gandavyuha sutra and it is uh, it has come down to us actually in the form of the in tibetan what's called known in tibetan as the sankha merlam which is the prayer of good action and the beginning of the sankha Menlam is quite a long uh, offering of what is known as of the eight is it eight or seven uh, branches mm-hmm. And uh, you know, which we often often recite in shortened form at the beginning of a sadhana, if you if you practice, uh, practice of, practitioners of Tibetan Buddhism. And so, uh, the purpose of it is to generate merit. So that at the beginning of a sadhana, they in order for the sadhana to succeed, you must generate merit. And so, emblematically, you often recite these seven branches. Um, So in uh, chapters two and three, you see these different branches being played out. Shantadeva, uh makes—I've um, got him. You know, he begins by uh, uh, prostration. He follows. He follows it by um, uh, making offerings, confession, uh, requesting the teachers to remain. Uh, requesting the teachings, uh, dedication of merit. These, all the, all these uh, sections of the Puju you can find in these, in these two chapters: the chapter on confession and the taking hold of bodhicitta. So, actually, if you look at the chapter of confession, you could again see that it's divided into two sections. First of all, he begins by making offering. And then he goes on to confession, and then you will find that in the third chapter, the different uh, branches of the utra puja are then then follow. So um, he begins by making offering, and the reason for that is that uh, in order for bodhicitta to take hold in one's mind, it's necessary for the mind to be enf- uh, enriched and strengthened by what we call merit. And last night I talked a little bit about merit and the, the unsatisfactory nature of that term. But basically it's this positive energy that fills the mind thanks to the practice of virtuous deeds. So um, that's why in the beginning of the sh- chapter two, he, Ch- Shantideva makes this offering and it's a very beautiful uh, series of stanzas in which he imagines uh, offering every I offer every fruit and flower every kind of healing draft all the precious gems the world contains and all pure waters of refreshment every mountain wrought of precious jewels all sweet and lonely forest groves the trees of paradise adorned with blossom trees with branches bowed with perfect fruit the perfume fragrance of divine and other realms, all incense, wishing trees, and trees of gems, all crops that grow without the tiller's care, and every sumptuous object worthy to be offered, lakes and mirrors adorned with lotuses, delightful with the sweet-voiced cries of water birds, and so on. So, basically, what he's doing, he's he's offering everything that he conceives to be beautiful and excellent. And... um, of course, you can make physical offerings as well. Um, but this, is, this can be rather tricky because um, the basic uh, attitude that has to be present when you make an offering in this way is that the thing should be completely relinquished, something that is excellent and something that is given. Um, and basically, it's, what is important is your own feeling of the preciousness of the thing that you offer. So that if you offer something, uh, if a poor person offers a flower and if a millionaire offers a million dollars, that could be very different. The, you know For the poor person just to offer a flower might represent a real sacrifice. And... Uh, that person could be really uh, entranced and moved by the beauty of the offering, whereas, and the millionaire could be too by the million dollars that he gives, but if it's just a sort of, you know, something that doesn't really matter to you, you can afford, it doesn't cost you anything, uh, that's not the the kind of offering that that will generate the merit. And this is something we should always bear in mind, because... um, we have to be once again very sincere with ourselves, and usually uh, the um, of course, for most of us we can 't afford to give very much in terms of physical wealth and anyway, who do we give it to? The main thing is to is to offer everything that we find wholesome and beautiful uh, you know the uh, um, You see a lot of it in the East uh, these days, uh, where you uh, you know it's, it's quite possible to have a, a, an attitude to merit which is quite um, materialistic. You know, you're, you know, you, you you've heard that you have to generate merit, and so you think of your merit as a kind of capital in the bank. So you do all the sorts of things that are supposed to produce merit, thinking that you've gained it. And so you often see, uh, you know it's a very Chinese thing, actually. It's something that, it's one of the problems that the Chinese have to deal with in their own lives. So they they have this kind of materialistic attitude and they make these huge offerings, thinking that they are generating merit. Of course, they might be, it depends on the individual. But you get the impression that actually, you know, it's too lavish somehow. And of course, the effect of it is not necessarily very beneficial, especially um, you know, on Tibetan lamas who can uh, get very materialistic, and uh, they get can get easily spoiled by this kind of uh, thing. So the offering the offering is, is something that one has to uh, really kind of think about carefully. Um, anyway, the point the point about offering is that it is it is crucial for the generation of bodhicitta. You know, there's a story that when Atisha went to some place in Tibet, and they said, please give us the uh, bodhicitta vow. And he says, I can't give it, there aren't any offerings. And so they made offerings, they laid them out, and he said, it's not enough. And so eventually they really pulled out the stops and they produced this huge offering. And he said, okay, now now I can give you the, the bodhisattva vow. It wasn't because he wanted any of the offerings. I mean, I'm sure he got up and left, like Paterimshi used to do. People would give him gold, and he would just leave it in the grass and, and, uh, and go off without it. Because it's not, the, the point is not actually for the, the, uh, the object of offering to possess the offering. The, uh, the, object, the, the point of the exercise is for you to let it go and to give it. And that's what Atisha was talking about, that for bodhicitta to arise... I mean, of course, he could have gone through the ritual, but it would have been meaningless... Because they couldn't have generated the bodhicitta that he was talking about, because they hadn't let go of their possessions, their, their attachment to things. So uh, that's the first part. The first part of this chapter is devoted to this, and it's very Indian. You know, he he offers uh, offers a bath to the Buddhas, and so he visualizes this wonderful bathing chamber, and the you know perfumed water, and uh, Music and the the, the Buddha sort of standing. It's sort of described in the commentary, a kind of sort of swimming pool, and the Buddhas are sort of being bathed, and then they're being dried with these wonderful soft cloths, and then they're being offered these wonderful robes and so on, and then uh, they get out of the bath, and you you pull the plug, and you imagine all the bath water coming pouring down over you, uh, purifying your negativities and so on. I mean, it's a very kind of it's it's a very odd <laughs> sort of thing to think about. I mean, it's not what we would normally think about, and, and goodness knows what it meant to the Tibetans, who, you know, most of whom never bathed ever. <clears throat> but you know, I suppose it's it was even more impressive in that. In that. Um, and then, uh, then uh, so having made the offering, in order to uh, prepare his mind for the birth of bodhicitta, he then goes on to uh, confess. And as I said last night, the point about confession in Buddhism is, uh, to cha- is a change of direction in one's life. Um, Chant- what Shantideva does is to invoke the presence of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and then he confesses. He says, uh, this is what I've done, this is what I'm like. And uh, he says, um, "I won't do it again." He doesn't ask the he doesn't ask the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas for forgiveness. They're not there to forgive. There's nothing for them to forgive. They don't even perceive uh, the negativity that uh, as negativity in the way that Shantideva does. Um, <clears throat> and of course, he he confesses all sorts of things that he possi- can't possibly remember. You know. But, and, as, and that's the same for us when we make this confession. Uh, we're talking about not just in this life, but all the lives before, all the negativities that have been accumulated on our mind streams from time immemorial. And what he does, what, what the point about confession here is that you accept that this is the case. And as I said last night, it's not a question of feeling guilty you can't possibly feel guilty for the the murder you committed a thousand, year, a thousand years ago when you were i don 't know a, a warrior on planet Zog. you know you can't possibly remember that, nevertheless, you accept that it's all there it's all being carried on your mind stream, and it will eventually fructify there's absolutely no doubt about it you know, it's one of the one of the basic uh, uh, qualities of karma. Is that it is completely indestructible, and it will unless it is purified. Uh, it will eventually fructify. When, when I say indestructible, of course, in the way it can be destroyed, that's the point of confession. But when I say well, what I mean is, it won't just wear out, in through the passage of time. And once all the obstacles to its fructification are removed, it will manifest. So. Um, one has to understand how uh, these uh, these negative seeds can be uh, removed, and so the the image that they use in the teachings is that you know when you have grains, a seed of uh, wheat or so on, um, it will remain like a seed for a long time. You know, they say uh, travelers in Tibet in the nineteenth century said that they you know the, the um, the atmosphere in Tibet was so dry that they could uh, keep a grain for centuries, and it would still sprout when they planted it. Um, so th- this idea is one that when the you know when you have warmth and manure and soil and so on, and you put the seed in, uh, it will it will burgeon, it will fructify. The plant will come out of it. So and it's the same with the karma, a karmic seed. When when the when the Circumstances are right; it will appear. The only way, what you can do to a seed to stop it from um, ever fructifying, is to roast it. Right? If you if you cook it, it won't sprout. So, this, uh, using this kind of this imagery, this metaphor, they say that when you when you use the four opposing forces, that's what you're doing. You're actually destroying the seeds of the karmic, you know, the karma. Um, we should bear in mind that this whole story about karma, this whole story of an endless series of lives, uh, action and fruit, cause and effect and so on, is all on the level of, as we will see later, the relative truth. Um, Ultimately, there is no karma. Ultimately, there is no cause and no effect. But we, who are living on the level of relative truth, all those things are absolutely unavoidable. So if you, if you commit an action, it's absolutely certain that uh, you will get the result, unless you do something about it. So you can produce karmic seeds for happiness in samsara, you know, as we saw on the, the level of beings of the first scope. You can practice pure ethics and that will produce happiness in a samsaric sense, happiness in the ordinary sense of the word. When you die, it will fructify in the experience of happiness in the higher realms, and so on. And then there is another kind of, uh, of karma, which is gauged towards uh, freedom and liberation. And that will lead to freedom from samsara, but we'll maybe go into that later. Um, so, it's not a question of Uh, feeling guilty when Shantideva is confessing. It is certainly a feeling of regret. So this is the first of the four opposing strengths. There are the strength of regret, the strength of amendment, the strength of the support, namely the person or the object to which you make the confession, might be Vajrasattva or in Shantideva's case, the visualized Buddhism Bodhisattvas, who are the witnesses of your change of direction. And then there is the opposing power of the virtuous practice that comes after. Um, so if you... One of the ways in which to see whether your confession is working is to watch how your own behavior changes. You now, if you have a bad habit and you confess it, you might have to confess it a great many times, but- eventually you'll see that habit start to fade out, fade away, and that 's a sign that the purification is taking place. Of course, you need a lot of patience for this to happen, nevertheless it's important to to do it to have these four opposing strengths and actually one of the one of, I think the strongest of these opposing strengths is the power of regret, and as I say. This is very different from feeling guilty. Now, People feel guilty because they feel that they have failed to live up to some sort of standard, You know, like the law of God or something. Or, you know, what, what would my mother think or what would my father think or that kind of thing. And, uh, or what would other people say if, say if they knew what I was really like. Uh, that is not what we're talking about here we're talking about the regret, understanding that what one has done will cause suffering to oneself and others. So uh, one image that I find uh, speaks to me quite strongly is to understand what uh, regret is in Buddhism. It's a story that I read about some years ago uh, in England, and it was about um, uh, some people in in the Royal Air Force, And it was a kind of uh, there were young young people who were learning how to parachute. So they'd done all the training on the ground, and they were in the plane, and they're going to do their first jump, right? So there they all were, waiting to jump out, and their teacher was with them, sort of giving them the last sort of uh, instructions, and they jump out, and the teacher jumps with them, and then suddenly the teacher realizes that in his, because he was so intent on teaching and explaining to his pupils, he hadn't put his parachute on. So he jumped out without a parachute. So the feeling he had then is regret. <laughs> that is what that is what Buddhists mean by regret. It's you realize that you've done something really bad and you're going to pay the price. <laughs> so you regret that and you then say, okay, we're going to have to do something about this. I mean, in this, I'm happy to say the story worked out well because the, they managed to, sort of, managed to cling to somebody, uh, you know, get hold of somebody, and they sort of got down to the ground on the, you know, on the st- just with one parachute. Apparently, yeah, I read, it in, I read it in the news. <coughs> I mean, it, fi- finally, it's not, you know, it's perfectly credible, you know, it's quite plausible that something like that might happen. So um, he says To Buddhas of the past, the present, and all future time, and to the Dharma and sublime assembly, with bodies many as the grains of dust upon the earth, I will prostrate and bow. Until the essence of enlightenment is reached, I go for refuge to the Buddhas and take refuge in the Dharma and in all the host of Bodhisattvas. To perfect Buddhas and to Bodhisattvas in all directions where they may reside, to them who are the sovereigns of great mercy, I press my palms together, praying thus. In this and all my other lives, while turning in the round without beginning, blindly I have brought forth evil and incited others to commit the same. Deceived and overmastered by my ignorance, I have, taked, I have taken pleasure in such sin. And seeing now the blame of it, O oh great protectors, I confess it earnestly. Whatever I have done against the triple gem, against my parents, teachers, and the rest, through force of my defilements in my body, speech, and mind, I the all the evil I, a sinner, have committed, all the wicked deeds that cling to me the frightful things that i contrived i openly declare to you the teachers of the world it may be that my death will it may be that my death will come to me before my evil has been cleansed how then can i how then can i be freed from it i pray you grant me grant me swiftly your protection <clears throat> Notice, uh, overmastered and deceived by ignorance. Um, as we will see later, uh, people who commit negative actions, they, use, they don't do it kind of just themselves. They do it because their minds are overwhelmed by uh, negativity. Uh, it's not like uh, Shantideva is bad in himself. What he's, committing, what, he's, what he's talking about is the mistakes he's made thanks to his misconceptions, his misunderstandings, his ignorance. He's not saying, I'm a bad person. Right, That's important to realize. And the Buddha never said, the, as I said last night, the Buddha never, never says to beings that they are bad people. He merely says that they suffer. And the reason why they suffer is that they're ignorant and mistaken. So... Again, it's not a question of guilt, which seems to be a problem for many Westerners who feel that they are somehow bad. In fact, as we will see later, guilt is a sort of ego clinging. It's clinging to the self. It's taking the self a little bit too seriously. Um, And so Shantideva, he makes this confession and he then reflects upon Um, the fact that life is impermanent and life is passing away and that there isn't really a a great deal of time he says um, we cannot trust the wanton lord of death the task complete or still to do he will not wait in health or sickness therefore none of us can trust our fleeting momentary lives and we must pass away forsaking all but I, devoid of understanding, have for sake of friend and foe alike provoked and brought about so many wrongs. But all my foes will cease to be, and all my friends will cease to be, and I will also cease to be, and likewise everything will cease to be. All that I possess and use is like the fleeting vision of a dream. It fades into the realms of memory, and fading will be seen no more. Even in the brief course of this present life, so many friends and foes have passed away, because of whom the evils I have done still lie unbearable before me. The thought came never to my mind that I too am a brief and passing thing, and so, through hatred, lust, and ignorance, I have committed many sins. Never halting, night or day, my life drains constantly away. And from no other source does increase come. How can there not be death for such as me? There I'll be prostrate upon my bed and all around my family and friends. But I alone will be the one to feel the cutting of the thread of life. And when the heralds of the deadly king have gripped me, what help to to me will be my friends and kin. For then life's virtue is my one defense. And this, alas, Is what I shrugged away. uh, That last line, those last two lines are quite important. You know, if we want to die happily, the only way to die happily is to live well, virtuously, not to have regret for uh, hurting, you know, the evils that we've done to others, and so on. Um, Or if we've done it, we must be conscious that it has been confessed and has been mended. Um, O protectors, I so little heeding, hardly guessed at horror such as this, and all for this brief transient existence I have done so many evils. No need to say how stricken I shall be when overcome with sick and dreadful fear. I am seized by forms so horrible to see, the frightful servants of the Lord of death. Who can give me safe protection? from this horror, from this frightful dread. And then I'll search the four directions seeking help with panic-stricken eyes. For in those four directions no protection can be found, and I shall sink into despairing woe. No refuge will there be for me. At such time, what shall I do? Thus, from this day forward, I take refuge in the Buddha's guardians of beings who labor to protect all wanderers, Whose mighty one those mighty ones who scatter every fear and in the dharma they have realized in their hearts which drives away the terrors of samsara and in the host of bodhisattvas likewise i will perfectly take refuge gripped by dread beside myself with anguish to samantabhadra i will give myself my body i myself will give to Manjugosha, gentle and melodious to him whose deeds of mercy never fail my Lord, Avalokita, I cry out from my depths of misery. Protect me now, an evil doer. Formerly your words I have transgressed. But having seen these terrors all around, I come before you. I come to you for refuge, praying. Swiftly drive away my fear. For if alarmed by common ailments, I must implement the doctor's words. What need to speak when I am constantly brought low? by ills like lust and faults a hundredfold. And if by, all, by if by one of these alone the dwellers in the world are all thrown down, and if no other remedy exists, no other healing elsewhere to be found than words of the all-knowing doctor, which uproot our every ill, the thought to turn on him deaf ears is abject and contemptible stupidity. Along a small and ordinary cliff, if I must pick my way with special care, what need to speak of that long-lasting chasm plunging to the depths a thousand leagues? Today at least I shall not die, so rash to lull myself with words like these. My dissolution and my hour of death will come to me, of this there is no doubt. Who can give me fearlessness? What sure escape is there from this? It's certain that I'm going to die, so how can I relax my mind at ease? Of life's experience all seasons past, what's left to me, what now remains? By clinging to what now is here no more, my teacher's precepts I have disobeyed. And when this life is left behind, and with it all my kith and kin, I must set out on strange paths all alone. Why make so much of all my friends and foes?' How instead can I make sure to rid myself of evil, only cause of sorrow? This should be my one concern, my only thoughts, both night and day. Um, The interesting thing about confession is it can be done at the last minute. You know, if you, you know, you can, I don't know how old you were when you met the Dharma, but I was already an adult, I wasn't a child. And some of us are quite old when we come to the teachings. But that really doesn't matter. Provided we can get the point uh, that one can put an end to the kind of meaningless sufferings of samsara, we can actually change direction. And this will uh, affect both the way we die and the, uh, you know, our destiny in the next life. Um, so, Shantideva then goes on to what is in this uh, edition the third chapter, in which um, he sort of got over the, you know, this dramatic moment of confession. It's kind of he's, it's done. Uh, he's made this decision to change. Uh, he's declared it to the, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. He's taken refuge in them as, the, as his uh, protector. They will protect him through the, the power of their blessings, but also the, the Dharma the, of their teachings, which he will implement and thereby transform himself. Um, and then he moves on to uh, the actual taking of Bodhicitta, uh, one thing I would I would just like to say about refuge, is that uh, it's you can it's quite easy to make the mistake of thinking that refuge is some kind of theistic thing, namely you go for refuge to the Buddha and he will protect you, right? But um, and he of course he does, but he does so not not by magic, by sort of waving a magic wand and making you. You know, putting you in the state of liberation. He does so by showing you the path and inspiring you and uh, showing you how to transform yourself, how the mind transforms itself. So actually real refuge is a commitment. Uh, you can think of the Buddha as a sort of protector in a sort of theistic way, if that helps. But actually real refuge is implementing his teaching because it's the, real, it's the Dharma itself that protects you. You know, like the Dalai Lama often says, that, uh, you know, if you're sick, uh, you go to the doctor, and the doctor will examine you and prescribe you the medicine. But it's not the doctor that cures you, it's the medicine that he gives you. It's the medicine that you take in. So it's in the same way, you can understand refuge as being this commitment to practice the teaching. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, he then goes on to... Um, Having prepared the ground by offering and um, confession, Shanta then goes on to uh, think about the, his commitment, the bodhisattva commitment, and how uh, how wonderful it is, and how um, what a great uh, development it is for him in his in his own life, and so he starts with this kind of. Um, Sort of raps, sort of rhapsody, almost. is sort of this uh, uh, the continuation of the of the uh, seven branch practice, in which he, he rejoices. He rejoices in the um, the uh, happiness of beings, the virtue that projects them into the higher realms, the virtue that will bring them to liberation. He takes delight in the Buddhas, the protectors, um, these and the. These oceans of great good, he calls them. Um, and he says, in, in, all these, in, all these, in all these things, such is my delight and joy. And so I join my hands and pray. So that's the rejoicing part. That's one of the seven branches. He then goes on to request teachings. And so I join my hands and pray the Buddhas who reside in every quarter. Kindle now the Dharma's light for those who grow bewildered in the dark of pain. He then uh, requests the teachings. I join my hands, beseeching the enlightened ones who wish to pass into nirvana. Do not leave us wandering in blindness, but stay among us for unnumbered ages. And then he dedicates his merit, the merit that's accumulated through these these seven branches. Through, uh, Through these actions now performed and all the virtues I have gained, may all the pain of every living being be wholly scattered and destroyed. So very often, when we, when you do this practice, you dedicate the merit. You know, like when you attend a teaching or when you do something good, positive. You dedicate it to your own enlightenment. Right? It's, they say it's one of the ways of protecting your merit, because merit, as we will see, can be destroyed. Here, however, uh, Shantideva he does this, but he does it in a rather beautiful way. he he, he dedicates it to. Uh, the way he himself will um, be transformed for the benefit of others. He says, Through these actions now performed and all the virtues I have gained, may all the pain of every living being be wholly scattered and destroyed. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine, and in the eons marked by scarcity of want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings, poor and destitute, may I become a treasure ever plentiful, and lie before them closely in their reach, a varied source of all that they might need. My body, thus, and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all, and do not count the cost, to bring about the benefit, is the benefit of beings. <coughs> so this... Uh, he's, he, he's actually sort of um, thinking about himself as he progresses in the Bodhisattva path over in the future, over many lifetimes. Um, <coughs> And then he says that, uh, so here in this last thing, he says three things that he's offering. He's offering his body, he's offering his possessions, and he's offering his merit also. He says, my body thus, and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all, and do not count the cost. So he's even giving that which in him, which will produce enlightenment. And it's actually, you You often find there's this kind of paradox in Shantideva that it's almost like he's giving precisely that that he needs in order to attain enlightenment. But he's actually giving everything. And it's the gift of everything that is the, the bodhicitta itself, the bodhicitta in aspiration. And then he goes on to say, so he's mentioned his body. So he adverts to the fact that uh, our body, our own body, uh, our most precious possession, in a way. It's that principle by which we can communicate with the the world. We exist in the world. And it's the thing that we most uh, uh, protect, you know. Uh, If somebody um, insults our body, saying you're old, or you're fat, or you're bald or you're, you know, ugly. People, people think you immediately rush to its defense, right? This is so actually body... Uh, so, actually, so, uh, and it's because he acknowledges this that Shantideva gives it away. He says, Nirvana is attained by giving all. Nirvana is the object of my striving, and all must be surrendered in a single instant. Therefore, it is better to give it all to others. This body I have now resigned to serve the pleasure of all living beings. Let them ever kill, despise, and beat it, use and using it according to their wish. And though they treat it like a toy, or make of it the butt of every mockery, my body has been given up to them. Why should I make so much of it? So let beings do to me whatever does not bring them injury. Whenever they may think of me, let this not fail to bring them benefit. And if in my regard they have a thought of anger or respect, may these states always be the cause whereby their good and wishes are fulfilled. All those who slight me to my face or do to me some other evil, even if they blame or slander me, may they attain the fortune of enlightenment. So let Beings do to me whatever does not bring them injury. And, uh, you know, there are... You've probably come across them in your own practice. There are certain prayers where you make this dedication, right? And you think, may anybody who touches me, who hears me, who sees me, may they be drawn to the path. And, of course, touching me might be stroking my cheek or it might be punching me in the face or, uh, you know... Um, who makes fun of me or who is pleasant to me. All those are contacts with me. And so the basic thing is that since this body is now given over to them, may that be a cause for their progress. So, you know, you have this um, uh, this two-line verse in Tibetan about relationship with a, uh, an authentic teacher. It's, um, they say... Uh, Tendrel sangpo, Sechik sangye, tendrel gempa, korwa tachen. It says, if there is a good tendril, if there is a good connection with this person, this lama, Sechik sangye, buddhahood in one life. Tendrel gem gempa, bad. If there is a bad tendril, Korwa tachen, samsara has an end. So even even uh, the people who torture and kill the great lamas you know like they did in the east of tibet for instance during the chinese invasion the the bodhisattva attitude is may those beings who did that these lamas right who they killed may they be jo- drawn onto the path through doing this to me so you know we've got to kind of get ourselves into that kind of frame of mind that's that's kind of quite a big training you know at whatever you know you know, supposing you're, you're married to a non-Buddhist. Supposing you've uh, understood the teachings and you've internalized them and you've understood something about bodhicitta. Of course, in any given human situation, that's what really impresses you the most. You know, the, the body of that person in front of this body here. The, the physical relationship, the psychological relationship that's based on that. And as I said last night, even the same with one's children. But we have to remember that these meetings, which seem so solid and permanent and real, are temporary stop-offs in our journey through samsara. And that other person is a whole universe different from me. That person has come from another place. That person will go to another place perhaps. But in this moment, here we are together. And when you kind of get used to that thought, uh, it it kind of frees up uh, the relationship. It brings a sort of spaciousness into the relationship, which is quite useful. Because if the marriage breaks down, and as we all know, that can be a very unpleasant event. You know, the, the children are involved, the divorce, settlement, the hatred that comes to replace the love that was there. You know, that's a very terrible and, but very common thing to happen, that love t- ch- changes to its opposite. But if, if, one, if one person in that relationship is a bodhisattva, then the whole situation is changed because that other person, even if that other person comes to hate you, or even in a situation of enmity, maybe not a marriage, but any other uh, relationship that's turned bad, perhaps through one's own fault, and one regrets it, but then the person doesn't forgive, and the enmity remains. The bodhisattva, in that the person who is who is trying to practice bodhicitta in that relationship, can make sincere prayers that may that person who has been in relationship to me. May that person be drawn to the path. Of course, I, of course, I, in the present situation, they're never going to like me again. That doesn't matter. They're going to go off and follow their their own trajectory, however it may be. But my prayer is that because of that uh, relationship that maybe has turned bad, they will find happiness eventually. Um, Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a big deal, of course. <clears throat> so, Shantideva, of course, is never kind of depressed. He's, he's, sort of, uh, he's constantly kind of um, uh, strengthening his happy state of mind. So he says, all those who slight me to my face and do to me some other evil, even if they blame or slander me, may they attain the fortune of enlightenment. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road for those who wish to cross the water. May I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an isle, May I be an isle for those who yearn for land, a lamp for those who long for light for those who need a resting-place, a bed for those who need a servant. May I be their slave. May I be the wishing jewel, the vase of wealth, a word of power, and the supreme healing. May I be the tree of miracles for every being, the abundant cow. Just like the earth and the space and space itself and all the other mighty elements, for boundless multitudes of beings, may I always be the ground of life, their ground of life, the source of varied sustenance. Thus, for everything that lives, as far as are the limits of the sky, may I be constantly their source of livelihood until they pass beyond all sorrow. So on the basis of these kind of aspirations then we move into these two stanzas which have since become the formula for taking the refuge vow. Just as all the Buddhas of the past have brought forth the awakened mind and in the precepts of the Bodhisattvas step by step abode and trained likewise for the benefit of beings I will bring to birth the awakened mind and, I will ab- and, I, and in those precepts step by step I will abide and train myself. So there he's taken the vow. He's brought to perfection his bodhicitta of aspiration. When, bodhicitta, when you, when you um, strengthen your bodhicitta, then you're in, in the position to make that promise. right? Um, it's not yet bodhicitta in action. It's the, the conclusion, the perfection, as I said, of bodhicitta in aspiration. And so when he does this, you know he's already said in the beginning of chapter one that people who have this thought of bodhicitta when it comes to birth, they become Im- immensely special. They become the children of the Buddha. And so the, he finishes off this um, uh, chapter with an incredible, very beautiful sort of celebration, which is... It's quite, it's quite nice to read it fairly frequently, to remind yourself uh, that, you know, however difficult the path may be, especially in moments of, you know, of depression and so on, to remind yourself of your own dignity, of, you know, you have had this thought, you have this thought, you're trying to maintain it. And you sort of, um, you no longer are in a position to feel dejection. It's, it's actually a fault on the part of a bodhisattva. So you have to remind yourself of this, this extraordinary uh, and great attitude of bodhicitta. We have just a few more minutes. I'll read a few stanzas. Those who thus with clear intelligence take hold of the awakened mind with bright and lucid joy, that they might now increase what they have gained should lift their hearts with praises such as these. Today my life has given fruit. My human state has now been well assumed. Today I take my birth in Buddha's line and have become the Buddha's child and heir. In every way, then, I will undertake activities befitting such a rank, and I will do no act to mar or compromise this high and faultless lineage. For I am like a blind man who has found a precious gem "'inside a heap of dust. "'For so it is by some strange chance "'that Bodhicitta has been born in me. "'This is the supreme draft of immortality. "'It slays the lord of death, the slaughterer of beings, "'the rich, unfailing treasure mine "'to heal the poverty of wanderers. "'It is the sovereign remedy "'that perfectly allays all maladies. "'It is the tree that gives relief "'to those who wander wearily the pathways of existence.' It is the universal bridge that saves all wandering beings from the states of loss, the rising moon of the enlightened mind that soothes the sorrows born of the afflictions. It is the mighty sun that utterly dispels the misty ignorance of wandering beings, the creamy butter, rich and full, that's churned from milk of holy teaching. Living beings, wayfarers upon life's paths, who wish to taste the riches of contentment, Here before you is the supreme bliss. Here, O ceaseless travelers, is your fulfillment. And so today, within the sight of all protectors, I summon beings, calling them to Buddhahood. Until that state is reached to every earthly joy, may gods and demigods and all the rest rejoice. Voila. So we continue this afternoon with um